begins with a title, A Song of Ascents. This title of A Song of Ascents identifies it with Psalms 120 through 134, and these were the songs gathered together that the people of Israel, when they would go up at the command of the Lord to Jerusalem three times a year to give praise to God as a community of believers. So you're telling me, Judd, God commanded his people to gather together for public worship. Yes. Families didn't just do the family thing. Families came together for the church thing, so to speak. And this was true because we even see it in the life of Jesus as he traveled with his family to the greater congregation. And it's not just a song of ascents. It's a song of ascents of David. And so when you hear this psalm, You will think it comes from one who's spent hours and months in a monastery. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or things too difficult for me. Surely I've composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It's a psalm of David, and David was not a monk. David was not a man in isolation, escaping the temptation of heart noise. He was the son of Jesse. He was a a skillful musician. He was a fearless warrior. He was the king of the people. He was a soldier. He was a father. And as we saw last week, he was an adulterer. He was a murderer. And he was a poet. One commentary has said Psalm 131's inner quiet comes in the midst of actions, relationships, and problems. So that this isn't, I'm going on my, quote, spiritual retreat for a week to Mexico, (laughs) four days, and then coming back. And so that is the only time when I do quiet heart work. No, it happens as you wake up and there are little boys at the side of your bed another little boy who's crying and hungry. So this psalm takes place within life, within reality. But you know what? As we saw last week, David didn't always reflect this inner peace, right? Last week he was running from God, he was hiding from God until Nathan said, you're the man. And So I think this psalm was written after that, when his soul had learned to be peaceful. And we see from verse 1, you're going to see the result. In verse 2, you're going to see the reason. And in verse 3, you're going to see his resolve or his responsibility to take what he learned. And so in verse 1, David shows us the first thing about a quiet soul is that life is not about him. Life's not about David. David is, is humble. See, proud people view the life through the lens of self. And not so with David. He says, O Lord, he begins with Yahweh. My heart is not proud or literally lifted up, nor my eyes haughty, literally raised too high. His heart is not lifted, it's not proud. This is not the David we saw last week, and there's a reason why we, we did last week's psalm first and then this week. When we don't conceal our sins and confess them, God shows us his abundant mercy, and this is the result. Only God is high and lifted up. Listen to these verses. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Son of man, you say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord, because your heart is proud. And so only God is high and lifted up. 
And that's David's heart attitude. If you were to divide this verse into two, it would, David says, here's my attitude. I'm not proud and here are my actions. I do not involve, literally walk in great matters or things too difficult. Some of your translations may say things too wonderful for me. David wasn't trying to play God. This idea of things too difficult or things too wonderful for me are used only two other times in Scripture. In Job, it says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And Job confesses his sin. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. And so Job sees that God is sovereign over all of life, even his pain. And David, in another psalm, just after the Psalms of Ascent, says, when he's describing, I was formed in my mother's womb. You, you have loved me and created me. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. David sees that God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one who is the creator, the redeemer. It is God to whom he looks. And so David was humbly settled on who he was in the eyes of God. That's good. David wasn't trying to be somebody else. When we try to be everybody else and not who God created us to be, that's when noise comes in. And again, David wasn't in a monastery off the Mediterranean. He had a job. He was a king. He had a family. And he was doing the things of the Lord. And he, with that came enemies. He wanted to build a house for God. God said, I'll build the house. It'll be through you. And so David, verse 1, shows us he was humble. I'm, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. I'm not arrogant. This is a good psalm of confession. Can we say that honestly today? My eyes are not proud. My, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I don't do things too wonderful for me. And so if that's the result, how does this happen? Here's the second idea of a quiet soul. Not only is life not about us, but this ideal state of humility is learned. Surely, some versions begin with but. I think it's, it's literally no. So if we are reading it, he says, Oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or things too difficult or wonderful for me. He says, no. Surely I have composed or stilled and quieted my soul. The, re- the, the result, humility. The, the reason is he's learned it. Humility is learned. He's cultivated it in his own heart through trusting God. And he's something that he's done only by the grace of God because we saw last week, left to himself, David was a lustful murderer. But as he, he confessed his sin, remember that turning point at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors their ways. And I think this psalm is part of that teaching. You can have a humble heart. It's not proud. You can have eyes that are not haughty. And so to be calm, that is, my soul is quiet. I am composed. To be calm is undisturbed and motionless. Think of Sylvan Lake. You've camped out there. You wake up, I'm sure, at the crack of 5.30. Nobody, everybody else is in their tents because they stayed up late. But you, you wake up, Bible in hand, going to go around the lake. You're going to take, I don't know, Psalm 131 with you. And you look out and there's nothing. That lake, it's like glass. That's what he's saying. 
my soul is composed. But I don't even need to give you an illustration from, from nature because he gives you an illustration in that very verse. Like a weaned child rests against its mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. This morning, when Lawson woke up, he was not yelling at the top of his lungs, not crying, not, wah! He's been weaned. He wakes up, he grabs that pack and play. Some mornings it's, mom! You can hear him through the monitor, mom! <laughs> kind of, am up! <laughs> Where are you? But he's not. Like a newborn, soon to be, huh? That has just woken up in the middle of the night and says, in newborn language, which translated means feed me, right? Feed me. He says, like a weaned child rests against its mother. We'll bring Lawson up, we'll put him in his chair, and he just kind of sits there because he knows Mama's going to feed me. Daddy's going to give me a banana, whatever it is we give him that morning. But he's resting. And David says, my soul, my soul, the very core of my being is at rest. Now there are some of you in here who carry on a persona. You're calm, you're cool, you're collected. But I would argue that deep beneath in the core, in your soul, it churns just like anything else. You come across as, as laid back. But I would ask, and if not, if it, if it comes from a peaceful soul, praise God. But if not, are we just masking it up here with this churning down beneath? This, this, this volcano that's waiting to explode. It's rumbling, although it looks peaceful from the outside. If the right pressure is put on it, we... No, this isn't just a peaceful looking outside. This is peace down in our core. My soul. My soul. David, the, the son of Jesse, the one who fought the giant, the one who was leading a kingdom, the one who rejected a certain one, Joab, and, and even Uriah himself rejected all their accountability until Nathan came along and spoke his language. It's that David who's at rest. He's not noisy. And then he just goes about his business, and it was just him and God. He had a great quiet time. That's not how he leaves it. That's not how he leaves it. Humility is something that is learned. So we begin, verse 1, it's humility comes as we trust God that we can't do anything apart from Him, and it's learned, and then we give that hope to other people. His responsibility in verse 3, O Israel. Life was not just about David. Life was about how David related to God and how he discipled those under his care. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Life is not about us. We must learn the composure that comes as we trust God. And, not or, not, it's not an option, we must disciple others. My question to us today is, outside your family, what man or woman are you pouring into and giving the faith away? Because if we don't do it, we are one generation from sinking. Who are you discipling? David was a discipler. Jesus, 
said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he said, and just have good quiet times. That's not what he said. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Later on he said, beginning in your own hometown and spreading throughout. So he says, O Israel, he, he, go, he moves from his plea to his proclamation from himself to the people in his circle of influence, and he says, hope in the Lord. Now what is hope? Hope is not a longing for an unassured longing. Oh man, I hope it rains today. Or if you're in Texas at this time of year, man, I really hope it rains today. A lot. That's not what hope is. It is a deep abiding trust. And notice what he says, hope in the Lord. A deep abiding trust in God to meet our needs and give us grace. That's what a child does that waits patiently for his mother. He trusts that God, the child trusts that the mother and the father will take care of him. And so we are called children of God. We need to trust that God will take care of us. And he says, hope in the Lord When? From this time forth and forevermore. It looks like from this text, he's saying, I'm not even going to think about what's in the past. From right now, from where I'm at, I'll learn from the past, I'll live for the day, and I'll look to the future. From this time forth and forevermore. He realizes there's time to come, but I'm starting here. I have no time, says David Crowder, to maintain these regrets when I realize how much he loves me. And it's not just about me and God. I've got to go tell the world, Oh, how He loves me. Oh, how He loves you and me. And where do we look in, in the Bible to see what, it, what are we supposed to hope in? We could look at, look, we need to go from Genesis to Revelation, but let's just work out. Look at Psalm 37 and 8. Almost the exact same words. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with Him is abundant redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for there is steadfast love. That's who God is. And there is plentiful redemption, an abundant redemption. That's what he does. And he will redeem Israel. Well, when, that, when is that time coming? In 5 and 6, I, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And look at this. In his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than watchman for the morning, I wait. There's this redemption that's coming, and for us, we get a taste of it. We see it. We experience it in our own life. When the Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, comes in and takes up residence in our heart, and there's just a peace and a quietness of, if He were to come back today, I'm not real concerned about where I'm going. I wouldn't even put the adjectives real. (laughs) I'm not concerned at all about where I'm going. I know where I'm headed. There's a peace. And this word, I love that. Read it because there's hope in it. And it points to a day that the Messiah of Israel will come back, and He has come back. And that's what we tell our friends who still were are raised in Jewish households. No, we know the Messiah. And you've got 39 of the books, but let me tell you, there are 27 others that are great. The first four talk about Jesus. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a rabbi. He went to the cross for your sins and mine. 
And he didn't have to. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so, what we learn is David was humble because he trusted in his God and he shared that with others. Humility is learned. The quiet soul is learned and should be longed for. Moses learned humility. Moses, who had been given the promises, had to see the land from a distance because he did not go about God's work God's way. Moses learned humility. Jesus Christ modeled humility. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't spit in the face. You know, he's on the cross. They spit in his face. He, he doesn't spit back. He recognizes. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Peter. Love Peter. Said that before, I'll say it. I love Peter. I love Peter. Ready? Shoot. Aim. <laughs> Wait a second. Aim. Fire. Peter learned humility. Peter confesses Jesus in Matthew 16. He just confesses him. You are the Son of God. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. Not two verses later. You're not going to die. To which Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You proud, you are not approaching this as I would. You're approaching this with the thoughts of man. Get behind me. You're acting like the devil. And then Peter denies him three times. So does he quit? Does Peter quit? No, he goes and he weeps over his denial. But then God comes back to him. Jesus comes back to him and says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Three times. Peter, do you love me? And then Peter, who, who had, was learning it, he's in process, we're all in process, looks at John and says, what about him? Jesus said, doesn't matter. What about him? You, Peter, follow me, says Jesus. And what does he do? He goes on to write two of the most comforting letters in the New Testament to which in one of them he equates humility and this noise in our life. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may prosper you, or so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And verse 7 is connected to it. It is not a separate verse. Casting all your anxieties on him. If your heart and my heart is noisy and anxious, and it's calling out to us, it is because in some sense we are prideful. We are prideful. We are not childlike. That's why he uses the illustration David does in Psalm 131. It's why Jesus uses it in the Gospels. Childlike dependence was looked down upon in those cultures because they were completely dependent. They were powerless. They couldn't do anything. They didn't have shows like Saved by the Bell that the children were figuring out the world. Children were dependent. They must look outside themselves. Paul says, don't be childish, be childlike. He said, be infants in evil, but be mature in your thinking. Jesus says, if you do not become like a children, child of God or like one of these little children, you will not inherit the kingdom. If you do not depend completely and entirely and always on me, you will not inherit the kingdom. Let me put that in another way. If you don't totally depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will go to hell. That's what he's saying. 
And frankly, I think the noise in our life comes because we, myself included, don't really deep down get the gospel. The gospel. We've been brought up in a world that says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. And so I've got to obey, I've got to do noise, 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 so I can be accepted. The gospel flips that entirely around. It says you are loved, therefore you obey. What is the mo- it's the motive of our life. It's the motive of, let's just get real practical, it's the motive of why are you coming to church? Why am I preaching? Am I preaching so people will like me? That is unrighteous, hell-bound sermon. Or, to those of you who tend to fall on the one view that um, you're more licentious, I will say you're more sinful than you ever dared imagine, but you're more loved than you ever dared dream. And to those of you that understand God's wrath and you're a little bit more legalistic, there's nothing you can do that would increase God's love for you. Nothing. Nothing. No, sir, no, uh, no amount of Scripture reading, no amount of Bible memory, no amount of church attendance. Are all those things wonderful? Absolutely. But the Gospel says you're so totally loved for God so loved the world and the idea of that term world there is the, God so loved the sinful, rebellious, God-rejecting, God-belittling world that He gave His only begotten Son that who should ever believe in Him shall have eternal life. You're so loved and that's why you obey. And we get noisy in our own lives. I, can, I had to tell my wife this week at least once, maybe more, when we were on the phone. I could just hear my tone. It wasn't at her, it was about an issue. I just hear my tone getting louder and and harsher. I'm like, I'm noisy. I'm not quiet. And then the motive, why am I doing what I'm doing? Some of us need to do the exact same things we're doing. Don't change a thing, just change your motive. (laughs) That's the hardest thing. Because if we flip Psalm 131 on its head, it exposes, it exposes what's going on in the heart. Here's how it would read. Self, my heart is proud. I am absorbed in myself and my eyes are haughty. I do look down on other people. I do chase after things too wonderful for me. I want to play God. So of course I'm noisy and restless on the inside. It comes naturally. Like a hungry child fussing on its mother's lap. Yep, like a hungry infant. I'm restless with my demands and worries. Hey world, and this is what we declare, people around me, I scatter my hopes onto anyone and everyone all the time, anyone who will listen. That's taken, and we have copies of these out on the front, from Peace Be Still, Learning Psalm 31 by Heart by David Pallison, who's the editor of the Journal of Biblical Counseling. I highly recommend you pick this up, read it closely, memorize it, and live it out. So you turn that psalm on its head and it exposes what's going on in your heart. I'm proud. For me to look up to myself, I must look down on you. For me to, let's just use the example, obviously in good jest and fun, for me to be a great runner, right, I have to look down on Heath 
a not-so-great runner, right? To which McDaly would go, <laughs> you little boy, you've only run the boulder boulder, 6.2 miles. I can do that. I have run halfway across Colorado and back. And so he looks down on me. Then we have somebody else in here who's run the Boston Marathon, and he's looking down on us all. He's like, yeah, well, I've qualified for Boston. I ran it uphill, heartbreak hill, twice. So we look down on others to look up to ourselves. And so what this is saying is if you're prideful or boasting about yourself, you're just prideful in a boisterous way. There's another pride that's less known, but it's just the same. It's self-pity. It's the pride of response to suffering. It says, I deserve admiration because I've sacrificed so much. It's the voice of pride of the heart of the weak, where boasting is the heart of the strong. It's the boasting says, I'm self-sufficient. The, the self-pitiful says, I'm self-sacrificing. And both of these people, fictitious as they are here in, on a piece of paper, the boastful and the self-pitiful need to come to the cross and see, these are things too wonderful for me. I'm trying to live life apart from Christ. That's what it means when David says, I'm not trying to do things too wonderful. He was building a kingdom. But what he recognized, as Colossians 1 tells us, and Hebrews 1 tells us, Jesus upholds the world with his words. And if he wanted to, I could die right here. I'd like to have Judd come to heaven now. Heart, stop ticking. It's that preaching a sermon, loving my wife, training my children, hanging around with you, running the Boulder Boulder or the Boston Marathon. Those are things... Too wonderful for us. Things too wonderful are not just, man, I've got a big project and I've got to get it done. It is, today I'm going to live the godly life. Too wonderful for you. Absolutely too wonderful for you. You and I can't live the life God wants us to live on our own, apart from the Holy Spirit working in our heart. And what happens is when we try to live on our own, apart from the Holy Spirit working on our heart, we get noisy. And even in our, if we try to get really quiet, there's sometimes that dull dull buzz like we hear now. You're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. You're not pretty enough. You'll never be pretty enough. You're not a good mom. You don't take care care of your kids. You're not a good dad. You don't bring in enough money. Don't listen to the nonsense. Like we did a couple weeks ago, preach to yourself. No. Those are lies from the pit of hell. I've been made in the image of God, and yes, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Every day of my life, I sin because I was brought forth in iniquity. But those sins have been forgiven, and God's in a good remodeling work. He's taking that heart of stone, and He's changed and given me a heart of flesh. And He has justified me at one point in time, and now He's sanctified me, and then someday I'm going to be with Jesus forever. I'll see Him face to face. But until then, He wants me to be humble, when I go about my daily business, He wants me to do that by trusting in Him for the very breath that I have, and He wants me to tell the whole world about it with a joy on my lips. Not drudgery. I'm a believer. I go to Eagle Bible Church. We meet at 10 o'clock on... If that's the way you're going to evangelize, 
don't. <laughs> Just say, we meet at 10 and it's awesome. What's so awesome about it? Because there are other people there just like me who love Jesus. And we sing together, we talk together, we laugh. The preacher's kind of corny. But it's fun. And he speaks the truth from the Scriptures. Lord willing, hopefully, almost every week, right? You want that. You don't want Judd's thoughts on the world. You want what God has to say. So are you noisy? I'll end with this. If you are, might I encourage you to read a short little book called Intimacy with the Almighty, not in lieu of your scriptures, but supplementing them. He talks about leading a simple life, leading a life where there's built-in systematic places of silence, which come usually when there are places of solitude. And ultimately, it's because you've surrendered your entire life to Jesus. Simplicity, silence, solitude, and surrender will help us cultivate that composed and quiet soul where the noise just fades away. Father, if we're completely honest before you today, myself and I'm sure many in this room are noisy. We may not be boisterous and have loud voices but our hearts are churning with discontentment, dissatisfaction wonder as to whether if this is all worth it fear misery pain not Lord that those in and of themselves are bad, but we have allowed them to rule our hearts and we do not view as Job viewed life through the verse that we know that our Redeemer lives and He will one day save us. Help us. We cannot do it. Help us go the rest of our lives trying to be peaceful on the inside by the power of the Holy Spirit rejecting the noise of the world. I pray for the women in this room who see advertisement after advertisement after advertisement that tells them they're not good enough and they buy this, I pray that they would reject it. They would see themselves as daughters of God, saved by Jesus Christ, and invited into being a fellow heir of the, of the grace of life. I pray that they would see themselves like that. And I pray for every man in this room to not be into, if I achieve this much and if I have this much, Lord, help us not buy into that, even in a Christian level of achievement and accolades. Help us to see that we're men made in the image of God who are called to lead, provide, and protect and give us the power and the ability to do that. I pray, Lord, that if we do that, we will have a peace that surpasses all understanding. We will live lives where people say, why are you so hopeful? That's what I pray, Lord. I pray that for myself first and foremost. I pray it for my wife. I pray it for my three kids. And I pray it for every single person, family in this particular body, this flock that you have given us. Might we be different in a noisy, crowded, complicated world? Might we be peaceful, composed, silent, and proclaiming the name of Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.
those men who are helping with communion would come forward. One of the ordinances we practice here is communion. And in Matthew 26, starting in verse 26, it says this, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body. This is We do this not at, like some of our friends who think this actually turns into the body of Jesus, but this for us is an external reality of an in. Uh, external sign of an internal reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross and this is a symbol of it. That he broke his body for us. He had to die so that we could be with him forever. And that is what we celebrate. Thank you, Jesus. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many the forgiveness of sins. He died for our transgression poured out his blood, and Romans tells us he rose for our justification. And now we have forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you again, Lord. And Paul says to continue this now, and like David said, forevermore, that each week we take communion as a special celebration as a collected body of believers, as it was done then, to declare the Lord's work and his death until he returns from this time forth and forevermore that one day he's coming back.
and that noise, it won't be noise. It'll be, as the Psalms say, a joyful noise. So when you hear me singing in heaven, you will say, wow, that is a joyful noise. But I'm happy to be here because I see my Savior face to face and we've got forever together, which is, blows me away. Father, we long for that day together forever with you. Together forever with the Father, His Son, celebrating you. And we'll never get tired of it. We'll never get bored of it. We will sing of your name in heaven forever. And so we are, we are eagerly anticipating that day. Until then, Lord, we thank you that you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you, Jesus, for always and only being perfectly submissive to your Father. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for working in our hearts what we cannot work in them ourselves. And so, Holy Trinity, we lift up your name as majestic as you are. We praise your name. And we pray that we would live the rest of our lives different because of your word that you gave us today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.